goodness isn't an abstract concept. It's a person. His name is God. Truth is not subjective or changing depending on on, on, on cultural changes or, or the majority. It is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And beauty, beauty is not merely something we enjoy. God defines what is beautiful because he is the ultimately beautiful one. We can only know goodness, truth, and beauty if we know God. Because God, like I was playing, is the ultimate reality. He made everything. He, this Christian worldview is that he created everything, and he defines it for us. He, he defines truth, goodness, and beauty for us. Is it okay? Is it okay, Ryan? No? Yeah, there it is. Okay, here we go. Do I need to do the whole introduction again? Oh, how about my prayer? That too? Let's do that all again? Okay. Okay, let's start over here. No, just kidding. Uh, but because God is the ultimate reality who made everything and defines everything, truth, goodness, and beauty for us, there bring, it brings up a question, doesn't it? The question is, is everything God is and does good? The answer is yes, because he is goodness and can only do good. But there are objections, aren't there? Objections to, to this. Why? Because in our experience, did this go off again? No? You can still hear me? Okay, sorry. Man, this is bad. This doesn't seem beautiful, but that's okay. We'll keep going. Uh, goodness, you know, the objection is how is it good to judge and destroy and kill? Because in our plagues, that's what God has done and what he's going to do so the objection comes how how is that good and true and beautiful but goodness is not just the absence of evil goodness is also justice and hatred for all evil so in fact both mercy and justice are two sides to god's goodness they're two sides of the same coin if you will god cannot be good if he's not just god cannot be good if he's not if he, if he doesn't take care of the injustice in this world. One cannot be good while tolerating injustice. God cannot be good unless he judges evil. So our text this morning is going to show us just that kind of God. So here's the, here's the main idea I, I want you to go away with. Is that we are to see God's sovereign goodness. That's his sovereign goodness. Complete control in his goodness, through his severe judgments, okay? And trying to answer some of those, I think the Bible is answering some of our objections to this. See God's sovereign goodness, he is sovereignly good and gracious in his severe judgment. Seems like a paradox for us maybe, but it's not. And, and then we're going to look at these three points. So what's he want us to do because of that? He wants us to fear he wants us to be humbled, and he wants us to look at the cross. So one of our pastors last week, Matt Munger, preached last week on the first six plagues. 
And, and, and we saw how Yahweh was slowly, over months, dismantling the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh in his great power. God was, by his great power, was dismantling. He was, he was putting them to open shame. And Moses and Aaron, you know, they, they came and they did the rituals. They did exactly what God said. They raised their staff. And, and what happened was plagues, judgments, came on the people of Egypt because they would not let God's people go. And uh, it was Yahweh who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Matt, thank you for introducing that, doing a lot of the hard work. I, I, I appreciate that. But Matt, with much humility and authority, told us that uh, – that though we do not understand at all how God can harden Pharaoh's heart, that's exactly what the scripture is saying. It's not a reaction to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. There's freedom in God to God hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he might display his glory, make his power known, and do good to his people by bringing them out of Egypt. Hey, Matt told us that we must accept what the scriptures teach us even if we don't understand it or like it. So Yahweh is demonstrating his absolute sovereignty and freedom here. And I just want to honor Matt. Matt, thank you for you showed us how to read the Bible and come to passages that say hard things that we don't like and say, I can't explain everything about this, but I just believe it because it's in the word. Brother, I just want to honor you. Thank you for for teaching us how to, to read and believe. So the question is, why is God doing all this? He tells us in his word, why is he bringing the judgments? Why is he bringing the plagues? In, in chapter 9, verse 16, he says, for this purpose, I have raised you up. That's Pharaoh. I'm doing these judgments to show my power so that my name might be proclaimed on the earth. So we're going to see God's sovereignty, his sovereign goodness, and his severe judgments. And we're being asked to fear, be humbled, look at the cross. First point, fear. We're going to read chapter 9, 13 through 35. I think this is my longest point. Uh, and, and so just keep that in mind as we, as we go. Exodus 9, chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear what God says in his word. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and I will not let them go, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause every, a very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home, will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the house. 
But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire rained down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, so such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Then hail struck down everything that was in the field. In the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and, and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you... And your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had said, spoken through Moses. So far, this is God's word. So we want to see God's sovereign goodness and his severe judgment and fear. Friends, this is one of the reasons he brought these judgments against Egypt. He wanted everyone on earth to know his name, to fear him as the only true king of earth. So what does he do? He shows himself to be sovereign over creation. You notice the word earth repeated several times, that he is the God of the earth. And uh, he, he, he will, uh, if he had not been merciful, they would have been cut off from the earth. And he says, uh, my name, so that my name might be proclaimed on the earth. So what does he do? He shows his sovereignty over earth and creation by sending a hailstorm, one, one that they had never seen before. You know, if any, if any of the Egyptians were thinking, it's just a hailstorm, we've seen that before, it's no big deal, we can handle this. They were wrong. The hailstorm was, was going to be catastrophic. There have been records of hailstorms through, throughout history that have actually killed people, hundreds of people at one time because of the amount of hail. Well, well, this is the worst Egypt has ever seen, but God gives them fair warning. And if they fear and believe his words, they would bring their cattle and people indoors. And friends, this judgment, it points back reminding us that God actually in the first six plagues was restraining himself. This is a merciful God. 
the first six plays were mostly just an annoyance. Frogs and gnats and flies and stinking and all of that. But now there's going to be fierce hail and death. And even in this, God is restraining himself. He's saying, look, get out of the way because my fierce thunder and wrath and hail is coming. Douglas, Stuart Douglas, a commentator on this passage, says this, especially 1670, this is a proto-evangelium that is the first good news. It's, it's like a proto-evangelium, meaning that it is a call to the whole world to recognize what these plagues ultimately show, that there is one God, he is in control of all things, and only he can save. The whole earth, 916, needs to know that there is no one like him in all the earth. His name will be proclaimed on the earth. End quote. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? That's ultimately what God is calling Pharaoh, and that's what he's calling everyone who reads this story. Fear the Lord. Fear him. And we have messed up views of fear in our culture, right? Fearing the Lord is not like fearing fear cowering in a corner because some out-of-control father or authority figure is railing against you and you're afraid he's going to hurt you. That's not the kind of fear that God is calling for here. In fact, in the New Testament, it says perfect love casts out fear. So there's, there's a different kind of fear going on here. He's asking people to fear the Lord. You know, some of us know only that kind of fear, and, and we quake in it. We hear fear, and we think, man, something bad is going to happen. That's not the only thing that is meant here by fearing the Lord. Fearing, fear the Lord is a reorienting of your life to a new reality, a final reality. The God, the creator, is true, good, and beautiful. And he wants truth, goodness, and beauty for his creation. And the way for that to happen is to a- arrange yourself under him and his works. It is what you were made for, fearing the Lord. That's why Proverbs says it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the only way to true happiness. So what does that fear of the Lord look like? Well, I think our text is saying it, at least the start of it, it looks like to listen and obey. You notice in verse 17, all of those, uh, or, or Pharaoh was still exalting himself. He was not fearing the Lord. In contrast, the, those who did fear the word of the Lord, they got out of the hail. They got out of the, the way of the, the wrath of God. So to, you know, for Pharaoh, he's exalting himself against God's people. And for God, that's exalting himself against him. He wouldn't obey the simple command to let God's people go. This is what it meant for Pharaoh to fear the Lord, to obey God in this manner. Let my people go. But it was going to cost Pharaoh significantly to do that. He, he's going to lose an, over a million person workforce, slave labor. It's going to cost him financially. And it's going to cost him his reputation as one of the gods of Egypt, most powerful man in the world. And we just have to ask ourselves, what will it cost you to fear God? Many well-respected academic Christian thinkers like Gene Veith, Tim Keller, Carl Truman, 
believe we are living in a post-Christian world. So in the West. So, so many of you may, might feel, feel like that is uh, going too far. Okay, that's fine. We can disagree about that. It's not a doomsday call, but it is to say that increasingly there is no cultural value to being a Christian like there, like there used to be, you know. It, in the South, there's still a bit of cultural value to saying you're a Christian. You're part of the good old boys club. So it's not all bad, actually. To say, you know, to have no cultural value for being Christian means there's going to be less nominal Christians. But it's hard in other ways. So what does it mean more and more that it will cost us to hold biblical values for fearing the Lord? Well, friends, it might cost you that post-doctorate fellowship to say that you believe God created the world. It could cost you a job. It could cost you friendships to fear the Lord, to proclaim Christ. You could get mocked for believing that God's word is inspired and infallible in everything it teaches. Now, it cost the first century Christians to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The Greeks and the Romans thought that was ridiculous. How could this be? I had a conversation two weeks ago with a a friend from the gym. Uh, We were talking about Christianity, and she loved everything about Christianity up until the resurrection. I just cannot believe in the resurrection because it's not scientific. She wasn't persecuting me. There was, she, she's great. We, we have no problems. What I'm just saying is increasingly it's going to cost us for saying something different than the culture says. So it may cost you to fear the Lord by believing and doing what he says. But, friend, I just want to encourage you that the cost does not outweigh the reward of glory. Fearing the Lord is reorienting your whole life. Don't you want truth, goodness, and beauty? Don't you want that? Don't you find it at times lacking in your own life? The pursuit of it, the the truth of it, finding out how to get there. Fearing the Lord gets you under that. It, it 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 is the thing that lines it all. It's the plumb line that lines it all up. You know, I had a friend ask me in our, in our application session, well, what, do you, what would you tell me if fearing the Lord cost me my job? What do, what do I get? Well, the thing that you get is fearing the Lord, trusting him completely, repenting of your sins and believing in him. You, you get everlasting life. You get glory from God. You, you get an eternal home. We're going to sing about that later on in the service, Jerusalem, our happy home. This is something you get when you line yourself up and you fear the Lord. It is. What is fearing the Lord? It is to listen and to obey God. So listen and obey God. It's also to repent. It's also to change your mind and your course of action. You you notice there's a bit of psychological dissonance between Pharaoh and and the Egyptians, the commoners. Pharaoh would not submit himself to Yahweh, maybe because he's too comfortable and shielded from some of the consequences of the plagues, but not the commoners. They were not suffering from delusions of grandeur, like the pride of Pharaoh was suffering. They knew what Yahweh could do. They experienced it firsthand. And so what did they do in verses 20 and 21? Everyone who feared the word of the Lord, they got out of the way of God's wrath. Friends, this is the first step, not the final step, but it is the first step 
is to listen to what God says and then repent of your sins and turn to him. But repentance is not just doing what the Lord says so that you might have an easy life and escape judgment. There's something more to repentance, right? And you, you saw it as we read on. I, I know that you don't really fear the Lord. I know that you haven't really repented of your sins. In verses 27 and 28, you know, Paul talks, Paul says that there is a worldly sorrow that leads to tears and that there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, a change of mind, a change of course of action. So to believe, to fear God is to believe what he says, to obey, and to repent. That's the start of the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of understanding and living a life of truth, goodness, and beauty. So seeing the sovereign goodness of God and his severe judgments is meant to lead us to fear God and to be humbled under God. First, to fear God. Secondly, to be humbled under God. Let's look again at the text. Exodus chapter 10, 1 through 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to, to you after the hail, what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers had seen from the day that they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and, and went out from Pharaoh. Then, then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? And Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he, that's Pharaoh, said to them, the Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men in, among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such as a dense swarm of locusts has never been before, nor ever will be again. 
It covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field throughout all Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So that he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong east wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. And Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord your Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take them to serve (coughs) the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. We're saying not only fear, but be humble. When we see the sovereign goodness of God and his severe judgment, we are meant to be humble. That's exactly what God was doing to Pharaoh and Egypt at this point. You can see in verse 2, he says, tell your sons and your grandsons how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians so that, my, you know, so that they may see the signs that I have. And that, that phrase, have dealt harshly with, means to humiliate. He has humiliated the Egyptians. Why? Because they raise themselves up in pride against God, the one true God. And he is saying, no, this, this must not happen because I'm the one true God, full of goodness, truth, and beauty, and I will not let other gods try to take that place. So he humiliates them in order to humble them that they might be saved. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me, he says in verse 3. He is humiliating for a purpose that the sons and the grandsons might know that he is the Lord. Know that I am the Lord is a covenant phrase. He's made a covenant with these people, the people of Abraham. He promised that they would be in the land for 430 years and that he would bring them out of the land by his strong hand. He is going to make a name for himself by by increasing Abraham's tribe, by increasing Abraham as a nation. And now it's happening, and it's going to happen His sons and grandsons and granddaughters and daughters might know that he is the Lord. No. It's a covenant phrase that uh, when the Lord knows somebody, it means he has set his mind on them to save them. 
You see, though, in the midst of this humiliation, Pharaoh begins to bargain with God. Did you notice that? In verse 9, or chapter 9, verses 27 through 28, Pharaoh's pseudo-repentance, which continues in the eighth and ninth plague, he begins to bargain with God. This is one of the ways we know Pharaoh's repentance wasn't real, is because he went back on his word. He's, bar- he's trying to bargain with the God of the universe. God said, let them go, period. That's, that's it. You just get them out of your land. Well, he won't do it. His heart was hardened, and he would not let the Lord, he would not do as the Lord had said. He never changed his mind. I will let you go, chapter 10, verse 7 through 11, but only the men are to go. Chapter 10, verse 24, I will let you, you know, I have sinned and my people have done wrong. You can go, but only leave the livestock because I want you back here. God has chosen to deliver these people out. And Pharaoh's saying, I'm just going to bargain with you. I'm going to negotiate because that's what we do. I was struck by this this week. That it's not just non-Christians who bargain with God. I do this all the time. Do you find yourself doing it too? Christians, sometimes you, you do this. May, you may wonder if it means you're a Christian or not, but we still do this. Why, why do we still bargain with God? Because we are sinners. And Paul tells us we still have the old man. Some, like, it's like tied to us, dragging it around, and that's why we're supposed to put it to death. Put to death the deeds of the body. We sin because we're still sinners. And God is making us more like his son, but we're still sinners. Sometimes, so just let's just think about some ways we try to bargain with God. Sometimes I say, I will obey you if you do this for me. I will give you a percentage of my income as long as it doesn't cost me my comfort and safety. I will sacrifice for my wife as long as she honors me. All right, husbands, I mean, has, has anyone ever thought that subconsciously? I'm the only one. Okay, yeah, I'm the only one, right. I'll do the dishes, but my wife better say thank you and notice it, right? I mean, we all do this in our own different spheres and, and relationships. I will sacrifice as long as they honor me, as long as they recognize it. I will give you my children. I will, if you give me children, I will live for you. I will fear you as long as you keep my reputation intact. Now that cuts close to home for me. You remember, have you ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? They're on this bus and touring heaven kind of. These ghosts who haven't quite made it to heaven yet are on this tour. And there's this guy on the tour uh, with a dragon on his shoulder. It's attached to his shoulder, and it's, it's giving him fits, and it's, it's bothering him. And uh, the angel, you know, with a flaming sword, I think this is how it goes. It's a good story anyway, uh, comes up to him and says, do you want, do you want to get rid of that thing? Because it's tempting him. He's like, this is not really a good place, and it's tempting him with all these things, and the guy is like, he wants to get rid of it, but it's too, like, it's too attached to him. He still loves it. It's a love-hate relationship, right, with the, the sin, the dragon on your shoulder. And the angel's like, I can get rid of it. And he's like, yeah, maybe I want you to get rid of it. But will it hurt? And the, the angel's like, yeah, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. He's like, oh, okay, maybe not. Don't do it. 
But he keeps going back and forth. He's tormented by this thing. And finally, he says, okay, do it, do it. And he cuts it off. And, and, and the dragon is moaning. And, and, and the man is wailing in pain. But then the, the man gets up and he's changed into a real man. And the dragon gets up, is changed into a horse, and they ride off to do noble things, great things. Friends, this is maybe an imperfect analogy of when we bargain with the Lord, what we're holding on to, God may want to cut that off of us to turn us into what he has created us to be. That is noble people pursuing the good, the true, the beautiful. That takes humbling ourselves. Peter tells us, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. So Yahweh sends these locusts, finally humiliate Egypt. The things that the hail didn't destroy, the locusts are going to destroy. I shouldn't say finally humiliate them, but a, 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 a humiliation in its own right. But he's humbling them so that he might rescue his people. He might do good to his people. Pharaoh cannot protect his people from the sovereign rule of God. All his gods have been defeated, and he has no power over Yahweh. Instead of humbling himself, he hardens his heart, and the Lord hardens his heart. Not only that, but Pharaoh, for, but he, God, forces Pharaoh to think about this in utter darkness. It's the ninth plague. You imagine that. Everything that you had to eat in terms of plant and vegetation has now been destroyed by both hail and locusts. And all of these plagues have been, and then God gives utter darkness to only the Egyptians for them to have time to think about it. Have you ever, do you, have you ever had, or do you remember the last time the power went out? And there were, it was completely dark. But not only that, your phone wasn't charged. You couldn't watch Netflix. You couldn't be on your phone or Instagram, anything. Have you ever had that? Some of us need that to happen to us, right? But that happened to Pharaoh. And he had time to think in, uh, in utter darkness about what God is doing. God is just in his judgment. He's powerful in his judgment. Friends, he is long-suffering in his judgment. God has humbled Egypt and brought them low. Sorry. And uh, we have to ask ourselves again, what about us? Has God humbled you and brought you low? Friends, maybe he's done that so he might do good to you. Have you thought of that? God might have humbled you or is in the process of humbling you that he might do you some good. See his sovereign goodness and his severe judgment. How should we respond? Fear God. Be humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And admit that he is God and you are not. Admit he's the finally, he's the ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty. But none of this is possible in ourselves, friends. We, we must look to the cross where the Son of God took the judgment for our sin. The Son of God who feared God perfectly and was humbled. So that's our final point this morning. Look to the cross. 
Now, verses 11, or chapter 11, 1 through 10 doesn't tell us to look at the cross, but we're going to get to the cross through reading this, okay, and then making some, we're going to make some connections here. Chapter 11, the final plague is threatened. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they, uh, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight... I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. I think the first thing to mention is that this, this section is probably a retelling of something that happened prior to verse 28, before Pharaoh casts him out and says, you'll never see my face again. If you do, you'll die. So this section probably happened in there, and it's like a, it's like a recap of it. You'll notice in verses 1 through 3 that the Lord is going to supply every need for his people through their, their, their slave owners, through Egypt. They're going to boldly ask for things, silver and gold, and God is going to move on these people's heart and they're going to give it to them. God is supplying in unexpected ways. The things I think to notice and that's going to get us to the cross in this passage are this is teaching us the whole, all of the plagues, especially these passages are teaching us that God is totally free, the total freedom of God, and the magnificent grace of God. So we, when we look to the cross through the plague, the judgment of the killing of the firstborn, we want to see God's total freedom. We want to see God's magnificent graciousness, his magnificent grace. I just want to well, I want you to notice these two things as we work through it. You notice in verse 4 that, that in his sovereign goodness, in his severe judgment that shows his sovereign goodness, he went at midnight. This is a severe judgment, friends. That God is going to kill the firstborn. I just want to remind you, though, that Pharaoh and the Egyptians are not innocent. You remember back in chapter 2? What, what the Pharaoh and the Egyptians did to God's people because they were increasing in number, they killed the firstborn of Israel. Friends, th these friends are, are not innocent. It's not that they don't deserve this kind of judgment. But was Pharaoh as nice as God? God goes at midnight. 
He's going to allow these firstborn to be killed in their sleep. They're going to die in their sleep with no pain, and the morning's going to the morning is going to come in the daylight when people find out. God is again restraining Himself. There's no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but He's angry with the wicked every day. Because it's not true, it's not good, it's not beautiful what they do. God allows them to die in their sleep. The death of the firstborn, he warned Pharaoh this would happen. He warned them it would happen, and Pharaoh is not innocent. He told, he told them at the beginning, through Moses, that if you do not let my people go, if you do not let my firstborn go, I am going to have to kill your firstborn. Because it's just, this is the just thing to do. See the sovereign goodness of our God and his severe judgment. In this total freedom of God, he, he is not only restraining, but he's just. And he, he makes this distinction, as he started out in the fourth plague, between Israel and Egypt. Do you notice this? Even in the darkness, the darkness is all around Egypt except right in Goshen, where the people live. There's light. They had light. They had everything they needed. The Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart, and he's making a distinction between his people and those who are not his people. Why does he do it? Well, he told us to show his power and to proclaim his name on the earth. That's good for the world. That they might know his name. Now, here's the objection. What's the objection? Everyone could probably say it verbatim. It's not fair. That's not fair. What about free will? So I think Paul answers this objection. And we're going to start in Romans chapter 3. And here the apostle Paul answered the very objections that we have towards this. And we do have objections to it, even Christians, okay? So here Paul, the apostle, in uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 9. He's talking about, He's talking about uh, Jews and Gentiles, how they're all under sin and deserve judgment. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's the deal. Paul's saying everyone's guilty. Everyone from birth is guilty because they're born in sin and they commit sins every day. And not even God's own perfect law can save them. Because none of us can keep it. God in his total freedom is just because men are radically sinful. Paul answers the objection in another way. 
in chapter 9, verses 1 through 26. God, in his sovereign freedom, has sovereign choice. Now, he's moving on in his argument to, to, to say why you are not saved because you are a national Jew. Only true Israel is saved. And it doesn't mean a nationality. It means trust in Christ. He says, am I speaking the truth in Christ? First one. I am not lying. My, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, the, according to the flesh, is the, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue. Not because of our works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says, and he quotes our verse from chapter 9, verse 16. Pharaoh, scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show you my power, my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? Now, here's the tension, friends. It, it's not human freedom that's the tension. Is how can God be sovereign, completely sovereign over everything and still hold man accountable? How can he do that and still hold man accountable? You'll say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here's his answer. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded, will the clay say to its molder, the potter, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, here 
should blow your mind is not that God would judge anybody. He must judge us all. But God would be merciful to me, a sinner. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. So friends, in Paul's argument, God is totally free to save whoever he wants, whomever he wants. And that is a good thing. It's a reassuring thing. We want, we want to argue about the freedom of man because we, we are out, we're outside in our thinking a little bit. God is the one who's totally free. Man is not. We're condemned under sin. We need to come back and fear the Lord under the truth, goodness, and mercy of who he really is. He has mercy and compassion on some. That's the hard thing to believe, that God would show mercy to anyone. Friends, God is totally free to do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to save me. He doesn't have to save you. And he's also totally just and must punish sin. But he chooses to show mercy to sinners. Oh, the depth of the riches and kindness of God. What about God's magnificent grace? How does he show, how can he show that mercy? I know we're going a really long time. I'm almost done, okay? Just take a deep breath, a little bit longer, okay? How can God show mercy to sinners? How can he be just and merciful? How can he punish sin and forgive sinners? The answer to that question is why the gospel is good news. Because the Bible tells us that God appointed his son Jesus to be both the redemption, just like he's doing with his children Israel, redeeming them, buying them out, and the propitiation for our sins. That's the satisfying of God's anger. That he would be, he would buy us out of slavery to sit from our slavery to sin and death. On the, he would do that on the cross, redemption. He would satisfy God's just wrath by becoming a wrath bearer, the propitiation. This is what Jesus did on the cross, friends. He stood in between God and sinners. And he took the hailstorm of God's wrath on himself in our place instead of us. He suffered the outer darkness of being forsaken, but the utter darkness of being forsaken by God. The darkness in Egypt only lasted three days. God's infinite justice fell on Jesus hour after hour while he was on that cross until he could say, it is finished. The wrath was fully satisfied so that sinners could receive mercy. They buried him. We sang about that. We suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was buried. But he didn't stay in the grave. This our great Christ, bearing the wrath of God for your sin and my sin, fully satisfied. He said, it is finished. And he rose from the grave. He got up alive. He's not just the God over the Egyptians and Pharaoh. He's not only God over you and I, he is God over life and death itself. The Egyptians lost their firstborn. But God gave up his firstborn son freely for us all. 
This is what it means to be good, true, and beautiful. What is to be done, friends? It's to believe the gospel and embrace Christ. Believe that Jesus died, was buried. Well, he lived for you in your place. He died taking on the wrath of God for your sins. And he rose again from the dead after he was buried for three days. And he conquered it all. Believe that. Only those who put their faith in Christ's atoning work will be spared judgment. Are you seeking for goodness, truth, and beauty? Does your heart long for it? Will you find it in, you will find it in the God of the Exodus. Because the God of the Exodus is also the God of the cross. So see God's sovereign goodness and his severe judgment and fear. Be humble and look to the cross. Let's pray. Father, we look to you alone. 